Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.33 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 5th of March, 2020. This is episode 210 of Bitcoin, and I really blew blew it yesterday. Yesterday's episode was number 209, which was the office that I used to inhabit with some of the greatest people I ever got a chance to work with. Why? Because we made each other laugh pretty much all damn day, almost every single day for years. It was like a safe haven office. There was... It was just something about that place. So if any of my crew from 209 listens to this podcast, this entire episode number 210 is dedicated to you. Also, the theme of today's show is proof of work is Bitcoin's killer application. Okay, so let's just roll into a little bit of community news. First and foremost, we've got a job posting up here for Fold. That would be our boys over there at FoldApp. Uh, let's see. This is from Hacker News. I'm just going to read the uh, read it word for word here. I this looks like it, it was all I can see is that it was posted March 2020. So I don't know. Obviously, somewhere in the last five days. Uh, Fold is hiring for a software engineer on site. Uh, sorry, on site and remote. Okay, so it's there. They are good for remote. All right. It is full time, one hundred and ten to one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year with equity. We are a cryptocurrency company backed by a number of well-known investors in the space. <laughs> Say that again. We have opportunities across our flagship payment product, Fold, working with Bitcoin Lightning Network technologies and working to get Bitcoin in the hands of everyday people. We'd love to hear from any Docker, Kubernetes. Django or React native experts out there. Crypto, Python, Kubernetes experience is great, but a critical eye and willingness to master new technologies are the real requirements. We embrace remote work and our team hails from all over. If you're looking for the right opportunity to break into the cryptocurrency space, email people at foldapp.com. Actually, that what that I'm sorry, I, I misread that. It's people at foldapp.com. Or view our job posting here, and then they give an angel.co link to that actual uh, job posting, which is no different than what what I've uh, seen here. But they are also, Fold is making mention when it says, uh, we have opportunities across our flagship payment product, Fold. It actually says zero in brackets and a one in brackets. And then down here at the bottom, zero is representing a foldapp.com and one is ln.pizza. No, they have not hung up the reins. 
on LN.pizza. I think that that's great because while it's kind of started out as, I don't know, I think it started out kind of tongue in cheek, but they had enough, uh, they had enough developer experience to be able to get that thing going live that there's no reason in the world that it can't become a very serious, a very serious product. I, I, there's no reason in the world it can't, but guys, so if you're a software engineer with Docker, Kubernetes, Django, React Native, these guys are paying between 110 and $140,000 a year with an opportunity to work remote. So take them up on it and hold their feet to the damn fire on that. Pay me $140,000 to do your Python shit from remote and see if they actually will let you do that. Because if they don't, you need to bitch slap them. I love the guys that fold, but everybody needs a good bitch slapping now and then. That's going to do it for community news, and we're going to roll right on in to the morning roundup number one. A new study shows that oil and gas industry is wasting a shocking quantity of natural gas in Texas. This is from Navina Sadvesam from texasobserver.org. Frackers are burning millions of dollars worth of natural gas, releasing hazardous chemicals and greenhouse gases into the air, worsening climate change, and creating health risks. Hold on, hold on. Worsening climate change. Well, if we don't want climate change and we're worsening the change, aren't we actually making it better? Watch your rhetoric, people. Watch that rhetoric, man. Words mean quite a bit. Uh, when was this written? Just see if I got a timestamp on here. There is no timestamp. I don't know when the hell this was written. Good job, Texas Observer. Excellent work there, pal. A new study by researchers at the University of Southern California and San Francisco State University found that oil and gas operators in South Texas burned almost 160 billion cubic feet of natural gas, enough to power 2.5 million homes for a year, from 2012 to 2016, the study published earlier this month in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology looked at 49 rural Texas counties that are part of or adjacent to the Eagle Ford Shale and identified almost 44,000 oil and gas flares, combustion stacks that burn off natural gas. The researchers found that just five counties, Dimmit, LaSalle, McEwen, Carnes, and DeWitt, accounted for about 70% of the flaring and the vast majority of flares were at oil-producing fracking sites. I was surprised <clears throat> by the sheer number of flares, said Meredith Franklin, an environmental baby at the University of Southern California and lead author of the study, quote, what we're concerned about is air toxins and also stress. When there's a lot of flaring going on, there's usually a lot of noise, and just the sight of it can be stressful for nearby residents, she added. Oh, oh no. Because everybody knows that out here in, in Texas, that people live right next to oil fields all the time. No, they're out in the sticks. She's, no. I mean, yeah, every once in a while, you will see a producing oil well in the middle of town, i.e. Odessa, Texas. Odessa, Texas has at least a couple of handfuls of pump jacks, you know, surrounded by barbed wire, not bar well, cyclone fences with barbed wire on the top. And no, they don't flare gas right there. No. God, Jesus. So the benefits from growing up in the Permian Basin is that 
I have a little knowledge of what's going on with this shit. Plus, my dad was an independent oil producer, so I spent a lot of my childhood on the platforms of exploration derricks. So, and fracking jobs. And fracking back in the day when my dad was doing it was not the fracking that you're... It was fracturing of the whole... Uh, fracking today means something quite a bit different, but acidizing, uh, logging, fracking, uh, exploration, production. I mean, I've seen every single part of the oil and gas industry that you can see, except standing on the floor of Chicago Board of Trade or whatever, uh, doing, you know, oil futures. That one I haven't done, but whatever. Oil and gas production in Texas has risen dramatically in the past decade. In the Eagle Ford Shale, which stretches across South and Central Texas, natural gas production has more than quadrupled since 2011. In the Permian Basin, oil production has increased from about 1 million barrels per day in 2011 to 3.8 million barrels per day. Without the pipeline capacity to move product, oil and gas producers are increasingly flaring excess natural gas. The result? They're burning off millions of dollars worth of usable natural gas, releasing hazardous chemicals and greenhouse gases into the air, worsening climate change, there it is again, and creating health risks for nearby residents. Flares release a slew of harmful pollutants. We're just going to go right past that because clearly there's going to be bad shit in there. Ramona Nye, a spokesperson for the Texas Railroad Commission, the state agency in charge of regulating the oil and gas industry, said that operators are issued permits to flare when pipeline capacity is insufficient. Companies may also flare during shutdowns, repairs, and maintenance. Since January of 2018, the agency has received seven complaints about flaring and has issued one violation notice. And then the smoke got me. I got bronchitis. Oh, those poor people out there. The new study likely underestimates the amount of gas being flared. Franklin's group calculated the volume of gas flared by analyzing satellite data that picked up heat sources, but also used industry reported numbers in their calculations. Academics and environmental groups suspect that the industry underreports the amount of gas being flared. And as a result, Franklin admits that her study probably doesn't account for it all. Of course not. Quote, When there's a lot of flaring going on, there's usually a lot of noise, and just the sight of it can be stressful for nearby residents, and I'm calling BS on that one. Franklin's findings roughly align with those of three other recent studies that also attempted to quantify the amount of natural gas being flared in Texas. S&P Global Markets Intelligence estimated that the oil and gas industry flared 163 billion cubic feet statewide in 2017. Last month, researchers in the Environmental Defense Fund... Uh, estimated that operators in the Permian Basin flared 1 point, or I'm sorry, 104 billion cubic feet of gas in 2017, almost double the amount producers reported to the state. At the recent Texas State Natural Resources and Economic Development Committee hearing, lawmakers questioned officials with the Railroad Commission about the apparent discrepancy in the numbers oil and gas operators were reporting to the agency. Ryan Sitton, one of the agency's three commissioners, said he believed Quote, the volumes reported to us are very close to accurate, end quote. (laughs) Colin Layden, a senior manager of the Environmental Defense Fund, said that new technological improvements in satellite monitoring, if adopted by state regulators, may eventually make it very difficult for producers to incorrectly report the amount of gas that they're flaring. Quote, when you're talking about 1,000 wells in a 1,000 square mile area, you're never going to have boots on the ground. So I think this kind of satellite analysis is the future. Oh, back to the future, Layden said. So, okay, 
Yeah, there's some problems. I mean, clearly there's some problems here. Uh, and they're not, what they're not saying is that, yes, when you're, okay, when you're flaring natural gas, some people are going to get the idea that it's 100% being burned out of a burn stack. And that's not, a, that's not the case. In some cases, just raw methane is being released into the atmosphere, which is worse than CO2. If you're going to be the bedwetter about climate change, then you know, raw methane is a hell of a lot worse than CO2 is. Okay, so I'm, I'm not arguing that. And I'm also not arguing the fact that so much of this stuff is being released, and I would like to actually see it be you know, kind of kept in the ground, but it's not going to be kept in the ground. Once you're doing oil exploration, the gas comes along for the ride and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And because it's so light and airy, it has a tendency to escape into the atmosphere, which is one of the reasons why it needs to be flared, at least burned. But it, because of the, the fact that there is not, the pipeline capacity isn't there because nobody wants to build the infrastructure because the cost of that the, at today's prices on a per cubic foot basis uh, for natural gas is so small that you'll never be, able, there's no return on investment. So there's absolutely no, there's no incentive for people to solve this problem simply by saying, shit, man, if we could just pipe it to some compressors, we could liquefy the crap out of it. No, no, I, we could. But if the ROI isn't there, then nobody's going to do it. So they're just going to release it into the atmosphere. And that's a damn crying shame. That's where Bitcoin comes in. Yep, that, yep, that, that's right. I said it. That's where Bitcoin comes in because, because people, Bitcoin has, that's where, again, that's where the, this uh, proof of work is Bitcoin's killer app kind of comes into play as the theme show or the show's theme. Jeez, can't talk again. The fact that we can set like a SG Barber uh, set or how he's got a company uh, that is able to set down like these ohm rigs, OHM, which is like, you know, it's a Jenny set with uh, Bitcoin miners and they set them right at the wellhead. Well, I mean, not on the wellhead. The, the wellhead itself is actually kind of a very dangerous place to put anything. <laughs> um, but that wellhead, as it's bleeding off natural gas, can be piped very, like just through like basic pipelines a hundred feet away or 200 feet away to Steve's, uh, rigs, the ohm rigs and just mine Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, and that gives it, that at least gives it a reason not to be just released raw as methane into the atmosphere. At least it's going to get burned into CO2, which is much less worse for the atmosphere, at least for the bedwetters. It's much less worse for the atmosphere. So the bedwetters themselves should actually be all over Bitcoin mining because it's portable. We're not going to where the we're not going to where the Bitcoin's cash is, right? It's not like it's buried in the ground. It that's the beauty of Bitcoin is that there's not a stash of it somewhere underground that we have to dig for. We can mine Bitcoin anywhere because of the nature of Bitcoin. What we need is energy and there's a shit ton of it just basically being released into the atmosphere. So keep all that in mind. This is all going to culminate in today's daily train wreck, but just bear with me. We're going to get into this next one here, which is a Coindesk article written by Patty Baker, March the 5th. That would be today. And her, uh, her piece is already getting a lot of traction with a lot of the bedwetters. 
who are crying about how we're going to boil the oceans with Bitcoin mining. This one is a New York power plant is mining $50,000 worth of Bitcoin a day. Really? An upstate New York power plant has been using some of its own electricity to mine Bitcoin on an industrial scale. Green Ridge, ooh, excuse me, Green Ridge, Greenage Generation, a natural gas power plant near the town of Dresden in the Finger Lakes region, announced it has successfully installed a mining farm in its facility. Comprised of nearly 7,000 mining rigs and powered by electricity generated on site, the facility can mine an average of 5.5 bitcoins every day, roughly $50,000, according to Coindesk's Bitcoin price index. Greenwich uses its own behind-the-meter power that generated electricity it uses itself at the basic cost of production. Kevin Zhang, director of Greenidge's blockchain strategy, said in a statement that the new initiative would provide potential investors with unique exposure to both the cryptocurrency and energy markets. The server farm comes as part of an extensive $65 million renovation of the power plant, which includes transforming the plant from coal over to natural gas, as well as investing in the electrical infrastructure needed to power the mining rigs. Following the plant's conversion to natural gas with both state and federal approval, in 2017, Greenidge CEO Dale Irwin said the mining operation would complement the power plant's unique commitment to environmental stewardship because costs are already low and predictable plant owners say they are in a favorable market position and believe they will remain profitable even after the halving event takes bitcoin's block reward down to 6.25 btc in may quote due to our unique position as a cogeneration facility we are able to make money in down markets so that we're available to catch the upside of volatile price swings said tim rainey greenidge's Chief Financial Officer to Bloomberg. First established in 1937, Greenidge is now owned by Connecticut-based Atlas Holdings, which helped install the mining rigs in the facility in the space of four months. The plant used to only open at peak times in the summer and winter months. The new mining initiative means it now operates all year round. Where the bedwetters, poor babies. No, God, is we're just terrible people. The server farm uh, currently consumes 14 megawatts of the 106 megawatts Greenidge has capacity for. That's enough electricity to power well over 11,000 average U.S. homes. Again, coming back to uh, proof of work is Bitcoin's killer app. This, without doing anything, essentially on a for free basis, Bitcoin provides these people with the ability to hedge against volatility in energy markets i'm seriously dude what is not to like about bitcoin (laughs) okay uh cringe uh, cringe alert yo okay we're going to talk a little bit about mimblewimble but not not in a leave no trace kind of way this is samuel haig reporting for coin telegraph sometime today developer predicts litecoin mimblewimble testnet launch by september (gasps) Okay, now, again, we have to be careful. We've seen one contender already go down. With uh, uh, Riding the ship of Mimblewimble coin, that would be Trace, Mayor. <clears throat> Let's be very careful here. But we might as well figure out what the hell's going on, so here we go. On March the 1st, David Burkett, a developer working on cryptocurrencies Grin and Litecoin, estimated that privacy protocol Mimblewimble will see a Litecoin testnet released before the end of summer. In an update to the Mimblewimble progress thread on Litecoin Talk.io, 
Burkett hesitantly predicts that Mimblewimble will be launched on testnet before September. Quote, I've so far been very hesitant to give exact dates on when things should be finished because writing blockchain software is difficult, time-consuming, and unpredictable at times. I didn't want artificial deadlines to force us to rush through parts of the code and introduce defects or security vulnerabilities. Having said that, I think it's finally time to commit to the first major event, end quote. David anticipates that the testnet launch will include all transaction validation of block rules, basic peer-to-peer messaging functionality, syncing, transaction pool, and, quote, the ability to mine blocks. Oh, my. Burkett emphasizes that the version will not include a usable graphical interface wallet and expects the transactions will need to be created manually. The developer has also posted a Litecoin improvement proposal to GitHub, which proposes one-sided Mimblewimble transactions and includes fixes for bugs discovered since his previous proposal. Despite the progress, David states that there is still a lot more to do. Quote, I've made some modifications to the original kernel ooh, to support the ability of soft, uh, to soft fork in new features in the future. I've also started to build out the Merkle Mountain Ranges, which are a data structure we use to commit to kernels and outputs. Once the MMR logic is finished, I should be able to get back to the block validation logic. This sounds a lot like Star Trek at this point. My just freaking good Lord. During September 2019, the Litecoin project announced that it had commissioned David Burkett of Grin++ to implement Mimblewimble support for the Litecoin network. The protocol change was intended to bolster Litecoin's privacy with Mimblewimble slated to facilitate confidential transactions. Mimblewimble was revealed to the world in August of 2016 when an individual acting under the moniker Tom Elvis Judiser, or Jed User, sorry, J-E-D-U-S-O-R, posted the original Mimblewimble white paper to a Bitcoin research channel. The presumed author has not posted since. The protocol is intended to enhance blockchain privacy, scalability, and fungibility through a process called CoinJoin. Multiple Mimblewimble transactions are combined into one transaction. As such, Mimblewimble blocks consist of a list of all input, output, and SIG data, obscuring the transaction data from any third-party observers. While originally envisaged as an upgrade or sidechain to Bitcoin, Mimblewimble was first implemented in Grin++, which was launched during January of 2019. So let's keep our eyes out for Mimblewimble and try as hard as we can to not automatically assume that Mimblewimble as a tech is a connected to Mimblewimble coin, which is a shit coin and a scam perpetrated probably by Trace Mayer himself, (coughs) but that the technology of Mimblewimble is probably still pretty cool. Uh, It, I always thought it was pretty cool. I don't know the particulars of it because that's not my gig and it's never going to be my gig. That's somebody else's gig, so they can have that gig. However, what I do know about it seems pretty damn interesting. So let's try to divorce the bad blood that we got with Trace Mayer from Mimblewimble itself. Now, as far as Mimblewimble coin, screw those guys. I don't need them. Facebook appears to be stepping away from Libra as it now plans to issue several separate virtual tokens. This was written yesterday by Omar Faridi. <coughs> Excuse me. Menlo Park, California based social media giant Facebook appears to be stepping away from the controversial Libra cryptocurrency project that it introduced in June 2019. 
Facebook's management says it will be creating several separate or independent virtual tokens with each pegged or backed by different national currencies, including the United States dollar and euros. This, according to a recent report from The Information, which cited several sources familiar with the project, uh, Facebook's management says it will be creating several separate or independent virtual tokens with each pegged to a different national currency. So they're just going to digitize the fiat that they already have. And apparently, I mean, this has to, this one is big enough that it kind of needs to be vetted a lot more. I'm just telling you what is kind of in the pipe. All right. This is in the pipe, whether it's true or not, we're going to have to figure that out because if this is true and they are going to back away from Libra, that's a pretty big deal right? Because they made, they made it such a big damn deal when they re the whole world was like, oh my God, Facebook's going to own everything. And oh my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> oh, shut up. I swear to God. Um, so it is yet, I, I don't know if this is 100% true. Um, Omar doesn't normally write stuff like this without kind of vetting, but you know, we shall see. Um, let's get into the rest of it. It's not long. The new digital tokens will be available via the Calibra digital wallet, which was being designed to support the Libra stablecoin and payment system. Users will be able to perform transactions and pay for goods and services with these digital tokens via the Calibra online wallet. The information that Facebook is planning to launch the Calibra wallet and the virtual currencies at about the same time. However, the wallet release has been delayed from June to October. The Calibra wallet might be offered via WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, and at first it could be limited to certain jurisdictions based on the currencies it can support. The Libra Association says it will move forward with developing the Libra token, which will be pegged to a basket of major fiat currencies. Last month, Shopify confirmed that it had joined the Libra Association, the organization in charge of developing the Facebook-led non-sovereign digital currency. Shopify seems to have ignored the trend, where several members had left the consortium as it had become more apparent that the policy trend does not bode well for the crypto. Founding members of Libra include major companies like Uber, Coinbase, Spotify, certain VCs, and others. Prominent names that have exited the group include MasterCard, Visa, eBay, and Stripe. So, I mean, does, are they just spinning out Libra at this point is one of my questions. And... If they are spinning it out, is you know what kind of invisible hooks is Facebook going to have in Libra? In my opinion, this thing's a circus. There's too many moving parts. They're moving too fast. They're going in too many different directions for, for me to look at this as a machine that I think is a competent machine able to do whatever job the machine was set out to do. I'm a big fan of like, like in audio. Um, I've been in audio for a long time. Um, and, or had, was in audio for a long time. I'm clearly over the last year and a half, I've been getting back into it. Uh, but at the time when we were still recording to magnetic tape, yes, people, I actually had a reel to reel tape that we would record to in our studios. That's the way we did shit back in, oh, I don't know, before the dinosaurs got killed. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, so when we were, doing things on, on machines 
that were custom built or purpose built for audio and they didn't do anything else, right? Now, all the audio that I produce is, is on a computer in a digital audio workstation and that particular piece of hardware that it runs on can do a lot of other shit. And it does do a lot of other shit. It doesn't do just audio. But back in the day, we always used to look for things that had what was known as discrete circuitry, which means it was usually simple. Like it would be discrete circuitry. We'd look for like stuff like, a, like in a, an equalizer where instead of having a system that could maybe process a couple of different signals at once using the same circuitry, discrete circuitry was we only use this circuitry to process this signal and that's all it does. It doesn't do anything else and no, it will only process one signal at a time. So in a lot of cases, like most, uh, most of the audio boards that we would use, uh, they did not have stereo channels. They, all the channels were mono. So if you wanted to put like vocals in stereo, you would run the vocal mic through two modules. And each one of them would have an EQ on it. And then you could do equalization in a different pattern from left to right. You would never find a situation where one track was a stereo track that had one EQ that could process both those signals. And what I'm getting at is that it was discrete circuitry was done this way, at least in audio for a reason to make deadly sure that the job that it was set out to do was the job that it did the best. And it wasn't tasked with doing other stuff. That's one of the reasons why I don't like Ethereum. When you look at it as a machine, there's so much shit going on. And there's so many people saying that it can do all this stuff. I don't kind of really want that. I mean, unless it's baked into the unit itself, I, I'm really skeptical at like how uh, Ethereum works. And now with this kind of stuff, this, news, this new Libra news coming out, if true makes me even more nervous about doing anything at all with that particular garbage pile. And I, that's really all I need to say about that. But again, discrete circuitry over elegance. I'll take discrete every single day, twice on Sunday. This one is from Colin Harper out of Bitcoin Magazine. He's writing this one on March the 3rd from ISP to P2P. How Mesh Networks Take Bitcoin Off the Grid. What happens if the internet goes down? You've heard it. I've heard it. We've all heard the refrain. It's a favorite of Fudster journalists, journalists like Francis Coppola and David Girard, and they treat it like the ultimate trump card when debating Bitcoin's value. Correct. If the internet goes down across the globe, Bitcoin would be in trouble. But so would the global banking sector the healthcare industry, food industry, and basically the entire fabric of our hyper-connected existence. If the internet is kaput, then you should probably be worried about stocking supplies and ammo because it's going to get wild. No shit. If the internet goes down, people, we've got bigger problems than money. All right. But what if I told you that in the event of a mass internet outage, there's a good chance that Bitcoin would survive. That chance is real and growing thanks to the promise of mesh networks, but or put simply, mesh nets are networks for, of, of peer-connected nodes that offer offline connectivity by means of radio. 
depending on the bandwidth of the network, you could do things like send a Bitcoin transaction or download the Bitcoin blockchain. When coupled with something like the Blockstream satellite network, which broadcasts the Bitcoin blockchain's data across much of the surface area of the globe, you could architect a nearly foolproof decentralized infrastructure that could be used as a makeshift web in case the actual internet goes down. The Gotenna team may come to mind when you think of mesh networks, so too might Losha Mesh, an open source mesh network project kickstarted by Randy Brito, the philanthropic entrepreneur behind the nonprofit Bitcoin Venezuela. For this week's issue on the use of Bitcoins through dissident technology, we talked to Brito and Blockstream developer Grubles about the promise of mesh networks. Grubles has published demonstrations on how to use mesh networks in conjunction with Blockstream satellite and send transactions and messages on block, uh, Bitcoin offline. The satellite is a boon to the mesh network use case here because, as Grubles put it, quote, the coverage area is enormous. We can practically blanket the entire continent with Bitcoin data with just one of the satellites in the Blockstream satellite network, end quote. Our Q&A with the pair below covers that, or covers the what, why, and how of mesh networks along with what situations they can ameliorate and what conditions need to be met before they can bring offline Bitcoin across to the, or access to the masses. So Bitcoin Magazine asks, for those who might be unfamiliar, what are the benefits of mesh networks? Grubel's answers, in a traditional network, like the one you likely use today at home or at work, you're connected to an ISP, which is typically controlled by a for-profit corporation. Your ISP then has its own providers, which it connects to, also owned by for-profit corporations. Sometimes these corps are pressured by governments to filter or otherwise censor information on their networks. A mesh network is, at the most basic level, a peer-to-peer network. Peers in the network provide connectivity to other peers they are connected to, and the peers of their peers gain connectivity, and so on and so forth. The results of the network without a central entity, and if you visually graph the layout of the network, it resembles a mesh rather than a hub and spoke like traditional networks where everyone is eventually connected to a central ISP. So Bitcoin Magazine asks, asks, how are they good for Bitcoin? Grubles, how mesh networks tie into Bitcoin is pretty straightforward. Currently, there is a reliance on the traditional ISP-controlled networks not just for Bitcoin, but for most things on the internet. If a network is controlled by a central entity, it can be easily shut down or censored. A mesh network is resistant to parts of the network going offline, so peers can route their data around the parts that have gone offline. This kind of resilience is important for a system like Bitcoin because it means that transactions can keep flowing and miners can keep producing blocks. If you're a merchant or a miner and your ISP decides to shut off your connection, you're kind of screwed. Bitcoin Magazine. To you, which is the most important side effect of mesh networks? The privacy they provide or the benefit of not having to rely on the internet? Grubel's answers, different people will have different answers to this, but for me, it's the added redundancy and the breaking free of the reliance on traditional ISPs. Privacy is important, but if you have a network which provides privacy but is bottlenecked by a central entity, then the central entity can just be pressured to shut the network down altogether. If we focus on building out mesh infrastructure first, we can always overlay something like Tor on top on top, or bake privacy into the mesh protocol itself. Bitcoin Magazine. On that note, what are some of the pitfalls of mesh networks? Where are the weak points? Brito answers, for using Bitcoin via mesh networks, the amount of data that needs to be transmitted could be its weakness. 
If you are in the Locha mesh, but you don't have an internet connection or a satellite dish, you will need to get the latest Bitcoin block data from a peer in the mesh and the number of hops you may need to do in bandwidth will be key for you to accomplish this. If there isn't anyone offering you this service, you would be isolated from the Bitcoin network itself. Fortunately, the Bitcoin community doesn't stop innovating in the network side of Bitcoin, so improvements like Erlay, Fiber, and more will make transmitting Bitcoin's block data over the mesh achievable. You will still be able to pretty easily use your Electrum wallet within the Locha mesh as far as you can reach an Electrum server that serves you with the wallet's latest balance updates, or you could make offline signed transactions reach a push transaction gateway and then receive a message when your transaction has been added to the block. Bitcoin Magazine, do you have anything to add to that, Grubles? Grubles answers, mesh tech is still in its early ages or stages. <clears throat> Setting up most mesh technologies requires some technical proficiency, so the vast majority of people will have a hard time getting connected. <clears throat> this means the total size of a mesh network will be relatively small to begin with. Once it's easier for the average person to set up and get connected to the mesh, then I think it will really start to take off. I think mesh networking is one of those things that you really don't care about until you actually need it. But I think that as the internet and communications become more and more a necessity of our lives, there will be a more awareness for mesh networking as a side effect. Bitcoin Magazine, Randy, you've been working on Locha Mesh specifically with your home country of Venezuela in mind. What needs to be done for something like Locha Mesh to be adopted in parts of the world that need it most? Brito answers, the decentralized nature and censorship resistance of the Locha Mesh are very important, but without a way to incentivize people to offer these services of Bitcoin's block data, the latest Bitcoin transactions, Electrum servers, Lightning Network watchtowers, offline push transaction services, and gateways all within the mesh, the Locha Mesh would be limited to mainly messaging and would need people to have their Locha Mesh nodes always online with the only incentive being able to send and receive messages within the mesh. <clears throat> to solve the incentivization problem, we've been thinking from the start of how we will be using the Lightning Network to pay for these services and we'll continue researching any available options to make this possible. One of the other methods we are currently looking at with the support of other members of the community is, for example, the use of Monero's new RPC, <coughs> sorry, RPC pay feature. We'll continue researching this matter and welcome anyone who would like to suggest or test their incentivization ideas for Bitcoin and the Locha Mesh sustainability and availability. Uh, last question is from Bitcoin Magazine. If I recall correctly, Locha Mesh relies on radio broadcasted on the ground. Grubles has used the Blockstream satellite for his own mesh network. In what ways does your design differ and what are the pros and cons of your approach? Brito answers, what the Blockstream satellite does is beam Bitcoin's blockchain data and messages to Earth. You could use this service to get the latest transactions and blocks using a satellite dish on your rooftop and then transmit this important data to others through the Locha mesh to allow people to transact in Bitcoin and the Lightning Network even if they don't have an internet connection. They just need to be inside the Locha mesh and get the Bitcoin data from you. This is the same solution that Grubles has demoed, but the mesh hardware he has tested, is, tested it with is not capable of transmitting Bitcoin's block data due to hardware and bandwidth limitations, only short messages. We are working on the needed capabilities for the Locha mesh to be useful for Bitcoin in the worst case scenario. That's going to do it for the uh, article from Colin Harper out of Bitcoin Magazine. 
But that last paragraph, we really should pause on that. And I'm going to read that one again. This is the same solution that Grubles has demoed, but the mesh hardware he has tested it with is not capable of transmitting Bitcoin's blocks data due to hardware and bandwidth limitations. Only short messages. We are working on the needed capabilities for the Locha mesh to be useful for Bitcoin in the worst case scenario. Now, I'm going to say a name. I'm going to say a, a gentleman's name right now. Luke Dash Jr. If you don't know what the hell I'm talking, if you're screaming at the top of your lungs and ready to rip my head off, I get it. If you don't know who the hell I'm talking about, Luke Dash Jr., who has, as of late, been on a hell of a Catholic religious bent, but be that as it may, just leave that over to the side. The dude's been in Bitcoin for a long time and he really does know what he's talking about. Now, a while back, he suggested, while, while everybody else was like, in the middle of the block size debate for Bitcoin and before Roger Ver decided that infinite size blocks was going to happen and, and that's what we needed for fees, that whole mess is, is, deserves a show all by itself. But I'm not going to, I can't, I don't have time to get into it here. I'm just saying that while that was going on and everybody was like, no, we need, a, we need to keep it at one megabyte. And everybody else was going, no, we've got to have terabyte blocks. Who does that sound like? Um, <clears throat> Luke Dash Jr. was over there in the corner silently watching and then one day said, honestly, I think we shouldn't even have megabyte blocks. I think we should have 300 kilobyte blocks, y'all. I, I think we should take the uh, block size down by two-thirds, leaving it the size of one-third or about 300 kilobytes per block. Man, you want to... Thankfully, he did that at the time when everybody else was roasting and, and hoisting people like Roger Ver up on, on stakes and burning them on pyres. And that because of that whole thing, Luke never got really microwaved. Every once in a while, he brings it up and he gets, you know, he gets the usual uh, slap back for it. And I'm going to get slapped back for this, but I'm not entirely, I am not entirely in disagreement with Luke Dash Jr. And here's the reason why. Okay, well, first of all, caveat. Do I think that that's going to happen? No. But it's good to have the, it's good, it's good to have a 300 kilobyte block back in the background um, as an argument to keep us away from going into the bigger block thing. Um, it didn't matter. I don't think it mattered as much before because we were so staunchly going to defend the one megabyte block size that we weren't really listening to Luke. But now that we're hearing him a little bit better, I think it's good because that kind of averages, it's hard to, it's hard to describe, but I'm looking at it from an average. If we're like one megabyte blocks and we're only one megabyte blocks, and then we got people like Roger Ver that want, and, and Craig that want like, I don't know, ex, 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 exabyte blocks or whatever it is. Then we have an average between one gigabyte or one megabyte. And then this, in, these insane numbers with the 300 megabyte block into the argument. If we put that in the argument, now our average kind of comes down and pulls it back from this insane amount. And the, the whole reason I think it's important is because if we let go of one megabyte blocks at the bare minimum, 
we won't be able to come out of a situation that is dire, like shutdowns of internets, uh, blackouts of satellites, because we'll, we, unless somebody torches the sky, a la the Matrix, we will always at least be able to have radio. And there's always going to be radio operators, hopefully, <clears throat> that know how to bounce signals off the moon, off of certain atmospheric situations. Because you can bounce them off clouds, but if there's a temperature inversion in the upper atmosphere, that sometimes can re, re, uh, act as a reflector dish. And that's one of the reasons why you need that kind of shit is why you need a, uh, they want you to have a license to be like a ham radio operator. And it's like, if you take the test, you have to study all the stuff that you can do to actually be able to communicate when you think that you can't. All these things would be better with the least amount of information. Okay, it's like re respecting the bandwidth that you have when you have it is tantamount. And the, the, I've always talked about it before. I always look at that Bitcoin's one megabyte block is tantamount to light armored infantry. Very mobile, fairly well defended, uh, but it's so small that it can fit through places that anything else can't. So let's say shit hit the fan, like full blown shit hits the fan situation and you've got half the planet that doesn't have internet access because I don't know uh, a coronal mass ejection that really does a really does a job on on like I don't know let's say the Western Hemisphere. Radio will still work if your radios you know weren't blasted by the electromagnetic pulse. There's that problem as well, but there are ways around it. There are ways around not having an internet for Bitcoin transactions. The larger your block size, and the means the larger amount of data that you always either have to check against, transmit, download, do whatever, to be able to functionally send transactions that can be trusted. The smaller those blocks are, the better off you're going to be because the network that you do have may not have the kind of bandwidth you e can't even download cat pictures kind of bandwidth, guys. That's what I'm talking about. That's why the small block makes more sense, which is one of the reasons why I'm one of the only people that don't yell at Luke when he comes up and says, hey, by the way, guys, 300 kilobyte blocks. It's not that I'm in love with the idea, but I am in love with the idea that there's at least one guy who's like, you know, there's another direction we can go. We can go backwards. <laughs> it's just saying. That's going to do it for your morning roundup number one. Let's get into some vitals. All right, so BitInfo charts bringing you some, well, relatively good news. I've got Bitcoin at a price of 9,127. It's above 9,000, man. Uh, I've got a low over at, going to be uh, P2P, B2B at 9,082 bucks. My high is over at BitAsset, and that's going to be 9,203 bucks. 354,000 transactions have been sent over the last 24 hours, representing 15,000 transactions per hour on average. Ooh, only 861,000 BTC have been sent, however, in that last 24 hours. 
and that's about 36,000 BTC being sent per hour on average. The average transaction value is two and a half BTC, while the median transaction is uh, 0.033 BTC or right at 300 bucks. Block times are way freaking low, bro. Eight minutes and 22 seconds. We have 0.14 BTC being taken in fees on a per block and almost 25 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had a 7.8% bump in the last 24 hours, and that brings our hash rate to 130.9 exahashes per second. And the last time no one did dick on Bitcoin was sometime today. Ethereum is at 232, Bcash is at 340, BSV is at 248, Litecoin is at 62.5, Ethereum Classic is 8.2, Dogecoin got a bump, 0.0025, probably that Elon Musk quote, and 30,757 transactions uh, is still beating Litecoin. Let's see what my note has to say about things. My hash rate or my note's hash rate is being indicated as 136.8 exahashes per second. And I've got 9.3 megabytes in the mempool representing six and a half thousand transactions. Last 10 blocks I'm looking at, all the blocks are full. Now let's see if 1ML has got their, their stuff together again. I'm just refreshing just for, for shits and giggles. And no, they do not. However, I'm going to take this opportunity to do a comparison of what a uh, 1ML uh, number of nodes says versus uh, Clark Moody. Now the number of nodes that I'm looking at <clears throat> on 1ML statistics, because there are some statistics that don't seem to be broke and number of nodes doesn't seem to be broke. They're saying 11,624. Okay, that's the number of lightning nodes on the lightning network. Now, if I go over here to Clark Moody, uh, I'm looking at the total number of nodes that Clark Moody has is half of that, 6,493. But the total number of channels that Clark Moody has represented here is 36,000. 1ML has 36,000 also as the number of channels. So somebody please tell me how 1ML is able to have twice the amount of nodes represented. Are they somehow like doing a guesstimation of nodes that they cannot see? I don't know. But let's get back into Clark Moody for just a little bit. Uh, the percentage of Tor capacity on the Lightning Network is still at 40%. And the capacity, they're talking about the, the liquidity that's in the network on a dollar basis or a Bitcoin basis. Total capacity that Clark is showing is 871 BTC, representing liquidity of $7.9 million US. 40% of that liquidity is represented in Tor's, uh, Tor nodes. and that's good. I just, I kind of wish Clark would tell me whether or not that percentage is rising on a day over day or week over week basis or dropping. But I think that'll do it for Vital Statistics for the day. All right. Welcome to part two of Morning Roundup. We have this one. From Joseph Young out of Decrypt.co, this was sometime today. South Korea gives green light to crypto with new law. 
The National Assembly of South Korea has passed the Special Financial Information Law, a big step towards legitimizing the crypto industry. Bend the knee, bro. And I, they, they, nah, I'm not talking about us bending the knee. Now, I tweeted out earlier today that Bitcoin legitimizes governments, but only if they bend the effing knee. And you will eventually bend the knee, bro. You will. Sorry, but that's just the way it's going to be. The National Assembly of South Korea's Legislation and Judiciary Committee has passed the Special Financial Information Law, a key piece of crypto legislation approved on March 5th following a delay caused by the coronavirus outbreak significantly tightens quality control in the crypto industry. (laughs) Quality control. I'm sorry, but come on. If you've been around for any length of time, you you know that most of this is a dumpster. It's just garbage. Oh, God. Okay, so anyway, the quality control of the crypto industry, specifically around local crypto exchanges, it requires gambling casinos, I mean crypto exchanges, to comply with the Financial Action Task Force guidelines on anti-money laundering and terrorist financing prevention. Exchanges will also need to receive... Approval from the Financial Services Commission and the Korea Internet and Security Agency to operate inside the country. Special financial information law requires local exchanges to obtain an information security management system licensed from KISA. That would decrease the probability of hacking attacks and security breaches, an issue which South Korea exchanges have struggled to deal with over the past two years. To date, only six exchanges in the country have obtained an ISMS license from KISA, including the big four. Upbit, Bitthumb, uh, CoinOne, and Corbit alongside Gopax and Hanbitco. As part of their compliance efforts, South Korean exchanges are proactively ramping up their quality control efforts by delisting digital assets that do not meet the standards of the exchange. (laughs) Sorry. I laugh because so much of this is just obvious garbage. And when you talk about quality control... There really is only one quality control. Let's just just use Bitcoin. All the rest of this stuff is garbage. If an asset does not have an active development team that communicates with the exchange to solve key issues, has a low level of development, low volume, and no under, or no understanding of South Korea's crypto market, it becomes subject to a rigorous delisting project. <laughs> We're gonna delist your ass with extreme prejudice, bro. The local crypto industry welcomed the passing of the new legislation. Blockchain Association of South Korea's chairperson, Kim Seong Ah, who also operates major South Korean crypto exchange, Handbitcos. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no... Never mind. Said that the legislation would further legitimize the crypto industry over the long term. No, bro, it's Bitcoin that's going to legitimize your ass. So stop it. Quote, the legislation would allow crypto exchange market to escape from poor public perception regarding fraud and malpractice. She said, adding that it would provide a foundation on which the industry could build transparency and trust. Now, going from one shitcoin casino to another one, we have this one. This one is actually, I think, even more important. Marie Julius writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. <clears throat> Indian crypto exchanges resume fiat services 24 hours after Supreme Court ruling. Major Indian crypto exchange Unocoin and Juarez X has resumed fiat deposits less than a day after the Supreme Court 
quashed restrictions on banks' services to crypto firms in the country. Unocoin, which claims to have been the first entrant into the Bitcoin space in India since its founding in 2013, has been described by a local analyst as an icon of the crypto industry. The exchange went live with Rupee and bank account deposits and withdrawals earlier today, March the 5th, followed by INR deposits on Binance-owned Warzirix. Wazirix. Yeah, Wazirix. Blockstream CEO Adam Back, the inventor of the Hashcash proof-of-work system later used in Bitcoin's mining algorithm, immediately welcomed the news of Unicoin's return to full services, tweeting, Game on! Hashtag Bitcoin! As reported, exchanges in the country have faced a moratorium on banking services since the central bank, the Reserve Bank of India, implemented its contentious ban on banks' provision to crypto firms back in 2018. Last year, amid increasing regulatory uncertainty, uh, the crypto in the country, Unicoin, had been forced to lay off 50% of its staff. The platform has remained open since the RBI restrictions came into effect, yet suspended all fiat deposits in the summer of 2018. Yesterday, RBI's decision was reversed by a bench of three justices at the Supreme Court who ruled that the ban was unconstitutional. Hearing for the landmark or hearings for the landmark case filed in response to a flurry of public and industry-led petitions had been held over the past two weeks or over two weeks this January. Kashif Raza, co-founder of the Indian Crypto Regula- Regulatory News and Analysis Platform Crypto Canoon, told Cointelegraph yesterday that the ruling was historic, believing it would bring positivity to the entire ecosystem. Raza's optimism appears to have been borne out swiftly with fellow domestic exchange Coin DCX yesterday reopening fiat services less than six hours after the Supreme Court ruling was announced. Ashish Singhal, hackathon star and co-founder and CEO of Indian blockchain payment startup CruxPay, told Cointelegraph he believes the ruling will pave the way for favorable regulations protecting all, protecting all stakeholders, all, and prompt renewed interest in an Indian crypto market for uh, from national to international players alike. While in effect, RBI's band had forced industry players to improvise strategies to continue to serve clients. In fall of 2018, two of Unocoin's co-founders were arrested for having opened India's first Bitcoin ATM. That This notwithstanding the fact that the machine had been specifically designed to not accept debit or credit cards in order to avoid any interaction with the banking system. The controversial case, which had spiraled amid RBI's moratorium and confusion as to the legal status of crypto in the country, eventually folded with both colleagues being released. As positive momentum gathers pace, one further potential change remains for the legal and regulatory climate in crypto in India. In fall of 2019, the Indian government had opted to delay the introduction of a draft bill on a cryptocurrency ban to parliament in the 2019 winter season. The bill was would reportedly seek not only to impose a blanket ban on the use of crypto in India, but also to pave the way for a state-backed digital rupee issued by the central bank. Speaking to Cointelegraph yesterday, Raza nonetheless argued that he believes the government is more likely to fall into line with financial action task force guidance rather than cement a hard-line stance. So, I don't know. Is it good for Bitcoin? Yes. Is it good for gambling addicts? No. I just, I just, I'm kind of caught in a, in a rock and a hard place on exchanges. 
<clears throat> I mean, I can't imagine how an exchange that only offers a Bitcoin pairings to different fiats. I don't know how that would, other than being, you know, being able to maybe take a, a cut on, on uh, arbitrage. I, I, I don't know how that they would survive. So it seems to me that the exchanges rather need this whole nest of shit coins to be able to operate. But for me, that, that just seems a very precarious position to be in because most of these coins are garbage. And we know that they're garbage and building a business on top of that much garbage. Generally speaking, you kind of want to build your, your primary pylons into the ground and hopefully on top of solid bedrock, not on top of pure garbage. All right, let's jump over to this one. Uh, Jeff Benson is writing for Decrypt.co. Dorsey's Square Crypto puts more cash towards Bitcoin grants. Uh, oh, this was actually written yesterday, by the way. Square Crypto is making it easier for developers to work on free open source projects that improved Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. Then I ran out. I didn't grab no shoes or nothing, Jesus. Damn, Skippy, run, not walk to the nearest fountain of cash, bro. Square Crypto, the Bitcoin development unit of Jack Dorsey's Square Payment Company, today expanded its involvement in the Bitcoin community by awarding grants to two developers, John Attack and Tancred Haas. John Attack, A-T-A-C-K. One of the coolest, if not the coolest, last name in all of Bitcoin. John, when John Attacks. I wonder if that was a high school thing for him. I'll bet it was. The money will also allow them to work full-time on open-source projects that benefit the Bitcoin network. Square Crypto has articulated the types of projects it's looking to fund through future grants. <clears throat> In addition to contributing to Bitcoin Core, Square Crypto has been particularly focused on expanding development of the Lightning Network, a second-layer technology that can theoretically help scale the network while enabling quick payments and off-chain settlements. In January, it released its Lightning Development Kit. The outfit has been clear that it wants to improve and promote Bitcoin, not just through its own efforts, but by supporting others. Part of doing that has been simply helping devs get paid for the free work that they do. Because Bitcoin is a massive open source project, there's a need for developers to contribute. Active contributions or active contributors often rely on grants to continue their contributions. OKCoin, for instance, started a 1000 BTC fund for developers last year. The Square Crypto grant program is designed to financially support developers who otherwise don't have the financial means to build financial freedom for others. It specifically targets individuals and small organizations working on projects aimed at improving Bitcoin through UX scaling, privacy, security, or something else that we haven't thought of, end quote. Moreover, devs should be working on free open source projects without a business or profit motive. Ooh, it's dangerously close to the edge of oblivion there, pal. But whatever, Square Crypto has previously awarded grants to the BTC Pay Foundation, which is developing a self-hosted server to process cryptocurrency payments, as well as a Lightning contributor who goes by the easy-to-pronounce name of Zemanpjx. Yeah, that's the Z-Man. Z-M-N-S-C-P-X-J. <clears throat> so Z-Man... Well, I don't know. There's just no way... I Marty had some people on his last uh, podcast, Tales from the Crypt, and one the the one the one of the guys actually can pronounce this, 
and it's awesome to hear it actually pronounced. But be that as, be that as it may, I can't do it yet. March guarantees include or grantees include John Attack, who's been contributing to Bitcoin Core since early 2019. According to his website, he's planning on doing some deeper reviews of the code and fixing bugs. He also wants to improve the Bitcoin Core wallet. Now, because of the grant, he'll be getting paid to contribute or to continue contributing. The other grant recipient, Tankard Haas, is working on a Lightning wallet that will allow users to text small amounts of BTC to one another with just an SMS verification. He told Decrypt, quote, it's an ambitious long-term goal, especially without an obvious business model. But I think it's worth exploring, and it makes sense to try it in the context of a grant. It does make sense. Through Square Crypto, or though Square Crypto did not respond to a request for funding specifics, Haas said the grant was substantial enough to allow him to work full-time on the open source infrastructure required to tie wallets to phone numbers. Interested developers can find funding guidelines and project examples on Square Crypto's Medium account. So there you go, more funding out of Jack. Who is under fire by, I had never heard about it before, but something called activist VCs or activist investors. These are people apparently who buy into companies so that they can change the company from within. Now, so I can't remember the guy's name and I can't remember the name of his company, but he really doesn't like Jack. He really has a problem with Jack and he really wants to remove Jack as CEO and he has a substantial stake in Twitter. So at this point, he's telegraphing transparently out in the open that he wants to depose Jack and get somebody else in as CEO of Twitter. I don't like that move, but I don't like it for two reasons. One, it's Jack's company. He helped build the damn thing and it's not like he was working in the mailroom. He wasn't in on the ground floor. It was like him and like at least, I think, two other people, and they built the son of a bitch together. Okay, so I got a problem right there. The second thing that I got a problem with is, as much as we like to point and laugh at Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett is an extraordinarily successful business guy, okay? One of his tenets is you find companies to invest in that you understand and has already in place a high quality management team that is making money and you leave them alone. Unless unless they really need help with something, Warren Buffett doesn't have to jack with any of these companies too much. He really doesn't because he spent his time investigating what is going to be the least amount of long-term work and the ma- and maximize profits for him. Whereas this asshole who wants to go in and kick Jack out, it's like he's got an ax to grind with the whole world that his entire investment thesis is to go in and fuck companies up. And I, I'm sorry, but as like, if I was asked by this guy to invest my money so that he could have a war chest to go do this kind of thing with, I literally would. Then I ran out. I didn't grab no shoes or nothing, Jesus. Jesus is right. I would run as fast as I possibly could from anything that even remotely looks like that. Because if you think that that's a good idea, that that's a, a relatively healthy way to go about investing, I got bridges in the middle of continents to sell you. And they ain't even over rivers. They're all yours, buddy. 100% yours. But Canaan... 
faces a class action lawsuit alleging dubious practices during its IPO. <clears throat> yeah, gee, I wonder how this space could have been populated with with such dubious people. Uh, Anna Alexandra is writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning, says... Blockchain services and cryptocurrency mining hardware producer Kanan is facing a class action lawsuit filed by investors following claims of dubious practices for attracting investments. Investor rights focused firm, a law firm Rosen Law has initiated the suit on behalf of Kanan Securities purchaser in the company's initial public offering. The law firm claimed that Canaan investors suffered damages as the firm had made false and misleading statements and failed to disclose a number of issues. According to the announcement, Canaan did not reveal that its investors to its investors that a purported strategic partnership, apparently with a Hong Kong exchange-listed company, Grand Shores, uh, was actually a transaction with a related party. Also, Canaan allegedly did not provide the investors with correct information about its financial condition, which was allegedly worse than had been reported. Among other allegations, the lawsuit said, quote, the company had recently removed numerous distributors from its website just prior to the IPO, many of which were small or suspicious businesses, and four of the company's largest Chinese clients in prior years were clients who were not in the Bitcoin mining industry and thus would likely not be repeat customers. <laughs> Jesus. Rosenlaw is seeking retribution for affected investors. Canaan uh, carried out its, la- its APO, IPO last November, wherein it raised $90 million, more than 75% less than was expected. Uh, Canaan has initially planned to raise considerably more with a funding figure of $400 million circulating prior to the event. The failure was purportedly a result of losing Canaan's biggest banking partner, Credit Suisse, just a week before the IPO. Additionally, a shareholder rights litigation firm, the Shaw Law Firm, has begun an investigation into purported violations of securities laws by Canaan. The law firm states that it is acting on behalf of Canaan investors and aimed to indicate whether Canaan actually issued misleading statements and failed to disclose information pertinent to investors. Both the investigations and lawsuit came in the wake of the analysis produced by Marcus Aurelius Value, which argued that the ASIC manufacturers had misrepresented its potential revenue for 2020 and that at least one of its customers is an alleged related party who is unable to honor a $150 million purchase contract. The analysts based their claims on a highly irregular transaction relating to Canaan's IPO on November the 27th referring to the $150 million deal between Grand Shores one month before the IPO, which would represent an equipment order almost equal to Canaan's revenue in the past 12 months, which amounted to $177 million. The analyst argued that Grand Shores had no way of honoring the agreement, citing the company's $50 million market capitalization and $16 million cash balance. Okay, the only thing I'm going to say about that is that... You can borrow against potential revenue. Just saying, if you want to go to a bank and say, here's what we did last year. There's no reason why we can't do that this year. Give us a loan. Give us one of those low interest, one of those low interest virus fighting loans. Because as we all know, ain't no better way to fight COVID-19 than a nice beefy low interest loan, right? Right. But this is true. You can borrow against 
at a bank, you can borrow against future revenue. You can borrow against revenue that you're owed, but haven't gotten yet, even if it's like 60, 90 days out. I don't recommend it, okay? <laughs> Not investment or business advice. I don't recommend it. It's the, the chances of you getting that money are slim to none and you're borrowing against it, which basically means that you just, uh, you just blew yourself a, a, a nice little hole right under your feet. So stay away from that. However, I don't know how much water this lawsuit is going to hold. Um, the, the fact that investors are involved and they're, that sort of like could be considered retail and not going to a bank and the bank loan officer should know better. Um, and it's up to their purview. So that could be the difference here, but it is completely not outside the realm of business practices to borrow against revenue you're either owed or revenue projections into the future. So just keep that in mind as this lawsuit goes forward. Now, the last one up in the stack. Let's see what, let's, let's see how, let's check in on, uh, on Ethereum and see how they're doing today. Sell, sell, sell. Major bug in Ethereum smart contract cost of devs, $25,000. Sell, sell, sell. A backdoor let people regain control of names on the Ethereum name service, even if they were transferred to other people. Robert Stevens writing for Decrypt.co on March the 4th. When the Ethereum name service, a smart contract that makes addresses on the Ethereum blockchain human readable, was migrated to a newer smart contract, it contained a bug so severe that it cost developers over $25,000 to fix it, the team said in a blog post yesterday. On November the 8th, 2019, a bug was submitted to the Ethereum bug bounty page that would let somebody claim back ownership over an address name, even if it were transferred to someone else. So, for instance, John Doe could register decrypt.eth transfer it to Jane Doe, then claim it back. Quote, this would be pretty bad. So we realized relatively quickly that we had to migrate our entire infrastructure to a new registry. Sell, sell, sell. <clears throat> that meant <clears throat> that all 310,000 names on the Ethereum name service required updating. Sell, sell, sell. As well as 50,000 subdomains. Sell, sell, sell. 60,000 names. Sell, sell, sell. And 37,000 names with addresses set. In total, that's 360,000 names. Sell, sell, sell. Sell, sell, sell. Sell, 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 sell. Yeah. Modifying all those names would mean they'd have to spend a lot of money in transaction fees. Since overall, the team had to modify around 840,000 storage slots. It had to spend a total of $25,000 worth of ETH to get the job done. On January the 27th, the team deployed a new smart contract. And in the very first full week of February, they migrated the names to a new smart contract. The job was finished on February the 10th. Luckily, upon investigating the vulnerability further, we were able to say with large certainty that the vulnerability was not exploited, said the team. Yes, it was. It was exploited to the tune of $27,000 and a shit ton of your time. Because if, it's, if you're saying $27,000 just in ETH to do these physical things of movement and all the other stuff, did you factor in your time? And how much you get paid, if you're getting paid at all. If you're not, then I get it. But you could have been doing something else. They're not factoring in labor here. How much does that cost? Because what would they say? January 27th to February the 10th. So we're going to say two weeks. 
two weeks worth of work for somebody who's getting paid even remotely close to developer status, a hell of a lot more than $27,000, especially if it's, you know, it's a couple of people. So I'm just saying, man, just the Ethereum, this whole ether thing is just, it keeps on going and going and going. And this is what I was saying about, I would much rather have discrete than elegant. And that's the thing with Ethereum. It's freaking elegant as hell. It's, it's a beautiful flower that unfolds in the sunlight and it's going to (laughs) die because it has no, that's the thing about a flower. It is there to attract pollinators. That's its only job. Once the flower itself actually disappears because it's like dried up and blown away, the only thing left is the ovum, right? And that's where the seed pod should normally develop. So that's the only part of the flower that actually stays intact. But the, the, the bigger the flower, the more insects it attracts, the more it gets pollinated and all that kind of stuff. And I guess it's probably like not a great analogy because there are seeds left over. But dude, have you ever seen a Bradford pear tree? Those things flower like a son of a bitch and they're beautiful. And they don't produce a single thing except flowers. That's what I think of when I think of Ethereum. It's beautiful. It's elegant. It's filled with color and light and all this kind of stuff. And yet, essentially, it doesn't do anything except cause problems like the Bradford pear. In my opinion, the Bradford pear tree is the most overplanted tree in the United States, much less the entirety of the whole world. It's a terrible tree to plant. It's short-lived. While it's alive, it throws out branches everywhere, which means that you constantly have to prune it or it's going to end up with a crotch that catches enough organic matter and moisture to cause fungal development. So then it dies. While it's there, it produces these flowers for about three days in its total glory. And after that, it does nothing but suck up water and nutrients and then cast leaves. I like leaves because I, I, I take them and I make compost out of them. But most people don't do that shit. They, it's like, oh God, yet another thing to rake up. And even if you do like compost, you still need to rake them up. These things are terrible, terrible things. If you have, aka a lollipop tree, in your front yard, do consider learning how to do one of two things: how to cut down a tree, Google that, and how to graft real fruit branches onto ornamental trees. Because if you can graft a fruit bearing branch from an actual fruit tree that makes fruit. And in this case, you'll have to get a pear because you, it's not like you're going to be able to get an apple tree to graft onto it, but you can cut a branch of the Bradford pear, a small one, and then you can graft onto it a branch from an actual pear tree, wrap it up. And then if that graft takes, and if you do it well, there's no reason it shouldn't, then that branch is permanently grafted onto the tree, uh, the Bradford pear, and that one branch will at least produce some kind of pear. So grafting ornamental trees with real fruit is one thing to search, and chopping the son of a bitch down is another thing to search. That's going to do it for your morning roundup. All right, so today's Daily Train Wrecked 
is going to hopefully tie up the whole theme today of proof of work is Bitcoin's killer application. Maybe it's, to y'all, I might sound completely off my rocker because I'm not saying that it's killer app is money. I'm not saying that it's killer app is security. I know I'm saying that the killer app is what makes all of the rest of it make sense so that it can perform double duty. And I'll get to that here in a, in, in a, a few minutes. But the, the train wrecked itself is brought to you by Christopher Mims. Let me read to you his bio. Former baby and aspiring ghost writes about our tools and how they shape us for the Wall Street Journal. So already we've got a bedwetter, okay? Former baby. I don't think he's former baby at all because he seems to cry an awful lot. So let's let's go, okay? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me. <clears throat> Get ready for this train wreck. Mims writes sometime today. And for context, he is referencing the Coindesk article about that New York power plant that's mining 5.5 Bitcoins per day or right around $50,000 per day. And he seems to be a little upset about it because he says, natural gas power plant is using 14 megawatts a day to mine Bitcoin in upstate New York. That's enough power for 11,000 homes. Is this really the best use of fossil fuels that were probably fracked out of the ground? Oh man, standing in the smoldering pile, the poor woman, sweet Georgia Brown, is getting a little irritated because she has bronchitis. And this is irritating. This is irritating as irritating can possibly be. And I'm, I'm kind of done with all these people. And this is, so this is where we're going to go with the proof of work is Bitcoin's killer app. Now, um, I have a tweet that I sent directly back to at Mims, M-I-M-S. That's this Christopher Mims guy that writes daily train wrecks as well as for the Wall Street Journal. I say... Bitcoin mining is the only mining operation in the world that can go where the energy is, i.e. is portable. It includes extraction, refining, smelting, transport, storage, auditing, and assaying, can use novel or heretofore unusable energy streams, and can secure financial system from corruption. Okay, let's get into that second one. It includes... Bitcoin mining includes extraction, refining, smelting, transport, storage, auditing, and assaying. When Bitcoin is mined, unlike anything else in the world, all of the other things that you would have to do to a mined commodity come along for the ride for free. Let me say that again. Every commodity mined on the face of this planet except Bitcoin has to be extracted and then it has to be refined. Then it has to be smelted or in other ways transformed into something else. This is for metals. Uh, transport is always involved every time something like this has to happen. Then you've got to store it. And at any given time, somebody's going to ask you the question, we're going to need to crack open the warehouse, buddy. We got to count this shit for auditing purposes. And then most of the time, especially in the, in the case of precious metals, somebody's got to assay it to make sure that you're not lying 
and tuck in little bits of tungsten into your gold bars. All of that comes along for the ride with every Bitcoin mined. So right now we're at 12.5 mined every 10 minutes. Everything's already done. It's already extracted. It's been refined. It's been smelted. Transport comes along for free. It's always stored in the most secure possible way, in the most secure way possible. It's audited every 10 minutes and assayed every 10 minutes from its inception. What you tell me for who gets the most bang for their buck? Because as far as I can tell, the Bitcoin network only spends money on this primary mining operation. And everything else is already done. It's already done. The auditing's done. The assaying is done. It's always done. It's done from the time that we pull it out of out of the ether to the time that the Bitcoin network completely dies. Hopefully because of either a coronal mass ejection and we all die or the end of the universe or whatever. I, it, it depends on whenever the chain ends. If there is an end, you never know what could happen. AI could take it up and all the humans, like, like, I don't know, let's say we're looking like a couple of million years from now and all humans have just, maybe we've, maybe we've grown beyond any possible need for any kind of money ever. And we're gone, bro. We don't even have bodies anymore. We're just floating out in the ether, basically huffing gas right off of Jupiter and shit going, yo, man, check it out, bro. Who knows? Who knows what the hell we're going to be doing? AIs could be like, man, dude, this is like, you know, the, those cats that left a couple of millions of years ago, dude, they actually, this is actually a pretty cool, pretty cool deal. We should use this. I mean, I like money. You like money as another AI and hey, we should hang out, bro. That kind of thing. It's not outside the realm of possibility, right? But until the end of time, from the very inception of a Bitcoin being mined, all of the stuff that you have to do with gold, silver, platinum, uranium, wood, coal, whatever, it's all done all at once. There's no other mining operation that I can think of. Can you? And if you can, tell me about it. But there's no other mining operation that includes all of the downstream bullshit that you have to do when you pull gold ore out of the ground. Somebody please tell me, because as far as I know, even oil, you have to refine it. Natural gas, for the most part, comes out of the ground pretty cool. However, it still has to be scrubbed, i.e. it has to be refined in some way or another, and it has to be transported, and then it has to be transported again and again and again. And every at any given time, somebody's probably going to be testing the, how much methane is actually in this natural gas stream. Because they're going to need to do that to figure out how much natural gas they actually get versus some of the stuff that they scrubbed out of it. I, you see what I'm getting at? There's no other mining operation in the world or in history that I know of that the mining itself includes all of the downstream bullshit that you have to do to anything else, which may very well make it the cheapest mining operation that has ever been on the planet with the least footprint that has ever been on the planet. I don't have to set up. The only thing that we set up is the mining is, is mining farm. Okay. 
So yeah, we need steel racks. We need computers. We need an air conditioned space. We need a concrete slab on the ground so that we're not standing in mud. And then we need a roof over our heads to be able to contain all the air conditioning and, and keep the rain out. Okay. From that standpoint, there's a footprint. Go look at a strip at a coal strip mine. If we were to have a facility that big, that would literally probably include all of the Bitcoin mining on the face of the planet as we know it right now. And that would be just one strip mine. So for the people like Christopher Mims, who just continuously yammer and go on and wet their britches about Bitcoin mining, you can tell them to go screw because this is the only mining that includes all of the downstream mining things that have to be done. And it's done from the very second that a Bitcoin is mined. So with that, there is your smoldering pile. Now, let's go ahead and get in to Dad Says Jokes, because this one I think pretty much represents Noriel Rubini. You'll either get it or you won't. A shop assistant tried shopping, stop, sorry, I'm gonna start again. A shop assistant tried stopping an armed robber by attacking him with a labeling gun. Police are now looking for a man with a price on his head. <laughs> it's terrible, I know, but the reason I kind of liken it to Noriel, Noriel Rubini is that he's always trying to label stuff, you know, and now he's got a price on his head. He can't, he's blocked every Bitcoiner under the sun because we're always going to give him his BS right back to him. So he doesn't even want to deal anymore. I haven't even actually heard him say anything about Bitcoin in quite a while. Although I estimate because we had that price, that price jump, uh, we're at like nine, what are we at? Like 9,100, hold on. Let me, let me see. Let me just check it out. Okay. We're back to $9,099. And, uh, so that was a hell of a price bump. Come to find out Peter Schiff, uh, sometime yesterday had tweeted something disparaging about Bitcoin. And as usual, in contraindication, Bitcoin price jumps. So people like Peter Schiff, uh, Noriel Rubini, uh, old what's her face from whatever publication that she's always writing in. All these people, they try to label things, label it like, oh, mining is going to kill us. Label it. Oh, it's a scam. Label this label. It continue, and now they can't walk anywhere close to this industry without being burned at the stake like the witches that they are. I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound that bad, but it is what it is. So, okay, so there's your joke. There's your smoldering pile. We're all done for the day. It's Thursday. So I'm going to finish this whole show out by talking about chickens. See, Marty, I can do it too. Um, chickens, why? Why am I talking about chickens? My daughter is wanting to get chickens, and we've been talking about this for a while. Backyard chickens for egg laying, no roosters. We live in a small enough town that a lot of people here actually have a rabbit tree or backyard chickens. There's actually a house down the street, and it's, you know, this town looks very much like any other town with, you know, blocks of houses and gas stations and but one thing that I've never seen in a town like with, you know, a fenced in backyard is a goat. Usually I see that out in the country. Not out here, though. <laughs> Not where I am at. 
Uh, I live in the what's called the rural urban fringe, which is a good place to be because you're not very far away from amenities such as hospital and running water, and you're far enough out that nobody really wants to dick around with you. So in these neck of the woods, we can have backyard chickens, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So now, why am I telling you about it? Because I figure you guys may want to know that there is no end to the amount of people in the Bitcoin space that I've heard that either want a farm, want a ranch, or just want to get the hell out of a city. That almost, almost to the T, there's nobody that I know that isn't like some way or another trying to, and we always talk about food and high quality food and high nutrition. And there's a whole bunch of carnivores that understand that meat and fat are good for you and that we should probably not be eating meat and fat that come from CAFOs or confined animal feeding operations. If I ever say the word CAFO, it means confined animal feeding operation of which there are plenty. I don't like them. I don't think it's good for the animals. And what's not good for the animals is not good for their meat. And what's not good for us is eating meat that is from an animal that their meat is bad because they were kept poorly in either event. Here's some of the things that we're going to need to get about 10 chickens. I need a place to get the damn chickens. Thankfully, March is tractor supply. You'll be able to find a tractor supply somewhere in your town if you live anywhere around the the Midwest. I think all the way past the Rockies and maybe all the way to the Mississippi. Don't know about east of the Mississippi. And I don't know about west of the, uh, uh, the Rocky Mountains. Not sure. But be that as it may, tractor supplies are plentiful. They have live chickens. Or, and if they don't carry live chickens in March, you can order them through Tractor Supply. And what else does Tractor Supply sell? They sell chicken coops. And they sell the heat lamps. And all the other stuff that you need for chickens. So what's the first thing that happens? The first thing that happens is that my daughter has been made very aware that if she wants chickens, this is her deal. It is not my deal. This is all her. She has to take care of, she needs to learn how to brood the chicks. So we're starting, we're kind of starting there. She needs to keep accounting. How much did anything for these chickens cost? How much did the chickens cost? How many eggs do we get out of the chickens? How many eggs do do we actually eat? She gets a notebook that I am buying for her when we pick up the chickens. And she's going to be responsible for all the numbers. She's 10. This, I want to teach her accounting and math. Believe me, I'm not a good accountant. I am not good with money. I never have been. So for both of, this is a way for both me and my daughter to learn these types of things for me better for her, learn them from the ground up. Addition, subtraction, accounting. Why is it that we use math? In the case she wants chicken so badly that if she wants to continue to have these chickens, she's going to know how to perform arithmetic. And by God, out of all the mathematics that I've ever had to learn in my entire life, the hardest math that there is, is not differential equations. It ain't calculus one, two, or three. It ain't linear algebra. It ain't algebra. It's arithmetic. Because everything of the other maths is basically based on being able to do quick add, quick subtraction, quick division, and quick multiplication. And if you can't do that, that's what makes all the other math suck so bad. <laughs> so we're start. I'm, this is one of the reasons why I want to do this with her. So 
she also is going to be in, in charge of letting the chickens out in the morning, putting the chickens out at night. I'm going to build her a chicken tractor. And after we get that thing finished, then she's going to be responsible for putting the chickens into the chicken tractor so that I can move them around the yard every three days so that they can dig and scratch into the grass, eat all the insects where they're at, and then move them to another spot and then come back behind them with new grass seed, pitch it down. And since they've already scratched up all the dirt, a light raking, a little watering, and boom, it's all planted. Chickens give you a labor yield. A lot of people don't know this. If you use chickens correctly, you get free labor. And then you get to eat their eggs. And if you've got meat birds on pasture, you get to eat the meat when they're done. The amount of insects that they eat, the amount of little like insect eggs, like tick eggs that they find on grass, under grass, in the dirt, whatever, they devour it all. So it helps keep uh, all the insect shit down doesn't doesn't mitigate it 100%. But my God, the amount of work that these little these little things do. If you just put them in a little section, caged in with a false bottom, which means that their feet are directly on the ground, then they will eat all the they will eat a lot of the grass. They will scratch and they will eat insects and they will eat insect eggs that they can find. And then you move them off and you plant like clover seed maybe some uh, perennial rye, uh, something, you know, a couple of other things. You rake it in, you water it, boom, you're reseeding your lawn as you go along. It's, 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 be- it's a beautiful system. This is the way that nature works. And if you can learn to use nature to your advantage, you're going to be much better off. Okay, so second thing is, is that uh, um, the brooding. Okay, so the first thing you're going to do, if you decide to do this, is you're going to have to brood the chickens because they, when you get them, they're chicks, they're hatchlings. They're maybe, you know, a couple of days to maybe like, you know, half a week old, but probably pretty much not more than that. So you got to bring them home. And for the first week, they've got to be kept in a brooder, which is any kind of container that gives them at least one square foot to two square foot per chicken of floor space with walls so that they cannot get out. Doesn't matter if it's caged or a plastic cardboard, as long as they can't get out of this thing and they don't have a lid on top of them, you're good. And you've got to put like shaving, like pine shavings in their food and their water. Their water has to be clean all the time, all throughout the day, which means that my daughter is going to have to be checking on these things several times a day for two to three full weeks before we even put them outside. Okay, so during that brooding process, they have to be warm, 95 degrees Fahrenheit for the first week. The second week is 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you start, can go down after that, like to, you know, 85, 80. And by the time they're outside, they should be okay for 70 degrees. You need to put them outside at a time that you know it is not going to freeze again. Or if it is going to freeze, you've got to have the wherewithal to go get your chickens, put them inside, because for that first year of their life, or actually not the first year, but that first like three months, when they finally get to be an adult, these things are bulletproof. Unless you, unless they get axed by a fox, a possum, or some such shit like that, or you step on them or mow over them with a lawnmower, they are bulletproof. All right, but to get them to that stage, that first three or four months. They cannot be in like wind. They cannot be dehydrated. They can't, I mean, blah, blah, blah. So 
you have to have a place inside that's away from the wind. It can be in the garage or basement or something like that. They need to be cleaned. Their nest needs or their uh, brooder needs to be cleaned every day. They need to have, they, when you feed them, you just keep their feeders full and you don't worry about how much you're feeding them and you feed them a high protein diet, somewhere between 20 to 23% protein is what you're looking for when you go to go get chick feed. And you want chick feed, not chicken feed, because it's like puppy chow, right? So you're looking for high protein uh, chick feed, and maybe a little grit, but it's not really necessary. And then their water has to be cleaned all the time. Now, during this time, while you're brooding, while we're brooding, for the next two weeks, I'm looking for a permanent chicken coop to be either I build or have it come in a kit and I build it on site or have it be pre-built and have somebody truck it out here and plop it down because you need a chicken coop or some place to keep the chickens at night. And then during the winter, that chicken coop, you need to have it heated. And you can do that with a simple food warming red lamp like you see at Furs or Luby's or whatever cafeteria that you go to, whatever those heat lamps are, same heat lamp that you might want to use in a chicken coop just to make sure that they don't freeze to death. Other than that, like I said, they're pretty much bulletproof. So we, I will uh, update you guys. We haven't done anything yet. Today is going to be the first day that I take my daughter over to, uh, to a tractor supply company to get the preliminary things for the brooder, which is the heat lamp, a thermometer, a waterer. So you need something to hold the water in and they make some specifically for chickens. You need a feeder specifically for little chicks and a couple of other items. And I'll just, I'll just pull out a list and tomorrow I'll tell you everything that we bought and how much it cost. And we'll, we'll, we'll do it like that. Uh, just so that you can kind of, if, so that if you're interested in chickens, um, even if you're in a, even if you're in a heavy urban environment, as long as you don't have a rooster, there's a lot of places that don't give a shit if you have a chicken. I.e., there's no ordinance, right? And I know how you guys feel about laws, rules, regulations, and stuff like that. But they will still make your life miserable if you decide to be the badass. I'm not saying don't be the badass. Always be the badass, but understand that being the badass can get you in trouble by somebody who actually has a gun. <laughs> Not that they'll shoot you for having chickens. I'm just saying, be careful. If it's, if you think it might be a problem and you do want chickens, dude, just call, uh, call the, uh, code enforcement of your city, not city hall, not the police station code enforcement. You look for code enforcement. They will tell you if your particular area or your particular town allows raising backyard chickens. Almost nobody will allow you to have a rooster. It's okay. Unless you're planning on breeding chickens from the egg and hatching them yourself, you don't need a rooster. Chickens lay all by themselves at least one egg a day, sometimes one egg every other day. So if you want like at least an egg a day, you need two chickens. If you need, if you want more than that, you need more chickens. So for each chicken, plan on one egg Every one to two days, they'll lay for about two years and then they graduate to freezer camp. And by the way, that doesn't mean eat them like you normally would eat chicken meat because they're hens and it's generally not good meat, but I'll tell you what it does make. It makes the best damn chicken stock on the face of the planet. There is nothing like hen stock. I've made chicken stock forever and ever and ever. 
And every time that I get a hen and make hen stock out of it, it's so much better. It's just got this meaty, silky flavor to it. But the meat is tough and kind of gamey, a little nasty. But dude, making stock out of it, yeah, they're, they're, ours are going to be graduating to freezer camp. My daughter already knows that that's going to occur. We're going to save one when it's, when it's time. But by that time, we'll already have more chickens because I don't want to get into a situation where we're just constantly not getting eggs. So if you want to follow the Chicken Chronicles, tune back again tomorrow and we'll see what we can do. After that, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.